0: Shares for Beginners.
1: This episode of Shares for Beginners is proudly brought to you by Stockspot.
0: All the elder abuse out there, financial abuse, is the most common. So recent statistics are that one in ten elders experience some form of financial abuse. This could come from a family member,
1: it could come from a, you know, a relative, or it could come from a, a third party. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. So recently, my mother's financial advisor retired. His clients were moved to another advice firm. This meant that my brother and I were presented with an updated statement of advice. Before I started doing this podcast, I had no idea about what a document like this covered. For most ordinary people, it's a classic case of too long, did not read. Most people's eyes glaze over and they sign the document based on trust for the advisor. But having a little bit more knowledge, which can be a dangerous thing, I devoured the statement of advice and I've learnt some interesting stuff. And to talk about it today, I'm joined by Sarah King from Stockspot to discuss this process and how adult children can make sure that their parents are basically getting the best possible deal. Hi, Sarah hey phil (laughs) thanks for coming in (laughs) thanks for
0: having me it's great to be here don't look so nervous (laughs) (laughs) Never.
1: (laughs) we're having a nice conversation actually before we started about ocean swimming we're both passionate fans of ocean swimming Mm. (laughs) absolutely so sarah works in advice and client care at stockspot she has over 13 years of experience in the financial services sector working in financial advisory operations and administrative roles so let's get started with the nitty gritty of it. What's the statement of advice and why is it so long? <laughs>
0: it's a very good place to start. Oh. So anytime you see an advisor and they give you a personal financial recommendation, they should issue you with this document, a statement of advice. Um, a statement of advice is really designed to help consumers or the client make an informed decision about whether the advice the is giving them is, is the right thing for them. The reason it can be so long is that It can cover lots of different areas in your financial planning needs. It might be focused on one area, purely just investing, or it could be a full financial plan covering all of your financial needs. And ASIC, the regulator, actually has very, very clear guidelines around what must be included in a statement of advice. So what it will look at is, you know, where are you now? What's your current circumstances? What's your risk profile? What are your goals and objectives? And what are the strategies and recommendations that the advisor is putting in place to help you reach those? Now with that comes a whole gamut of other, you know, rationales. You know, what's the reasonable basis for the advice? Why is this in the best interest of the client? How will it help them um, achieve the best possible outcomes? If they're recommending that you switch from one product to another, you've really got to make sure that you're doing accurate comparisons, but in addition to that, there's a lot of disclosures and things like that that make the statement of advice very, very long. You know, you have to explain all of the remuneration, any conflicts of interest, any associations with other parties everything about your licensee. So it becomes quite a lengthy document. And any product recommendation you're making, you've also got to provide a product disclosure statement. So the poor client could be ending up with this document that's 40 to 50 pages long, if not longer, full of text. And it's it's been said that it's become more of a document to cover the advisor rather than being client-centric and just giving them the, the recommendations that they need in an easy-to-understand format.
1: So what kind of um, advice would you give to someone, sorry, not advice in that sense (laughs) of the word, but someone who's presented with a statement of advice, what should they be looking out for in it? I mean, are there key parts of the document?
0: Absolutely. I mean, the most important parts are what are the recommendations that the advisor is giving you? What are the fees that you're going to be paying for that advice? And often they can be quite difficult to understand. There can be lots of layers, and we'll probably chat about that shortly.
1: Oh, we will. Don't you worry about But you that.
0: also want to check that, you know, the advice that you're getting is not conflicted, it's independent. And if you're seeing, you know, product recommendations that are either all from the same issuer or there's not a lot of diversity there or, yeah, there are gaps, then they could be red flags and you might want to have a chat to your advisor about those.
1: Mm. So what is the difference between a planner and an advisor? Are they very similar or is there a difference between them?
0: Yeah, they are, but they're very distinct. There are key differences between an advisor versus a financial planner. An advisor is anyone who's going to give you advice on a, it could be on anything, it could be investment advice, it's on one area area or a few areas investment advice tax it could be around insurance whereas a financial planner is someone who's really going to set you up with a strategy for life usually a strategy that will see you through to your retirement and it's going to cover a full spectrum of, of areas covering cash flow budgeting debt management investing, superannuation, it might even extend to as far as estate planning and insurances as well. And you may end up building a relationship with a financial planner for quite a long period so that they can see that strategy through for you.
1: What sort of age do you think people should start thinking about seeking financial advice or a plan?
0: I think the earlier the better, but I mean...
1: But it can be expensive, so people look at that initial upfront cost and then say... Is it really worth it?
0: Well, that's right. I think the majority of Australians don't need that end-to-end financial advice. It might mean that in certain periods of your life, you need investment advice, for example. So, for example, I'm an investment advisor. I help, you know, thousands of clients from as young as 18 or, you know, parents investing for their kids start to build an investment plan. And it's, you know, you can do it in a very cost-effective way. If your circumstances become more complex and you, you want structuring advice, you know, you have accumulated a bit of wealth and you need guidance on that, that's when seeking out um, more holistic end-to-end financial advice might be worthwhile. But you'll typically see individuals not doing that until they're in their 30s or 40s.
1: Mm, but you encourage people to absolutely to, to look at uh, doing it rather than, I think a lot of people, they just sort of think, oh, well, I've got my super and that's going to be fine. You know, that'll look after me in my retirement. But um, then they've got sort of no plan for you know, there's things about looking after kids, which schools they're going to go to, which university, and all of that.
0: That's right, and yeah. that's what a financial planner will help work out with you, particularly in that initial meeting. Mm. You know, there might be things that you haven't even thought of that the advisor will will bring to light in terms of meeting those short mid and longer term goals how are you going to get there you know is it curbing spending habits Mm. have you accumulated a bit of debt what can we do to get that down how can you be investing like there's a lot of strategies even you know effective ways to contribute to your super uh, so that you can then lead that lifestyle that you want down the line
1: yeah that's so difficult sometimes, isn't it? <laughs>
0: there's the, a lot to think about. But there's,
1: uh, I mean, we've got to understand that people are being protected. It's all being put in place by regulations and um, legislation to protect people. But then it has seems to have that effect of uh, it's not really helping people who often really need to get this advice.
0: Well, that's right. I mean, the average cost of providing advice now has, has gone through the roof. Mm. I was reading the other day, it's, it's hit about $3,200. Um, and that's up from about 2500 over the last year. So and that,
1: That's per year, isn't it? isn't it?
0: That's per year. And mm-hmm. then, but, th- and that's not only the cost. Often that's just the cost to get the plan, mm-hmm. to get the mm-hmm. SOA. Yeah. You know, you've then got to look at the investment component. Where are my investments being held? Mm-hmm. Am I going to have ongoing reviews with my advisor? So it is an ongoing cost that you need to, yeah. to factor in. And you want to make sure that uh, if you are paying that higher advice fee, that you are really getting strategies and recommendations that are going to lead to better financial outcomes. Mm. Yeah,
1: And of course, at the moment, there's a shortage of advisors and there seem to be a lot leaving. I mean, we've gone from how many advisors were there? 30,000 or thereabouts? Yeah.
0: To paint a picture, back in 2019, there was Mm. about 26,000 or so advisors. I think that's when that, they were at their peak.
1: For the whole of Australia.
0: For the whole of Australia, <laughs> the millions like of a... Australians. And, yeah. and and now it's tipped to fall below 15,000 here in Australia by the end of this year. And then by the end of 2023, as low as 13,000. So that's 13,000 advisors to service the whole of Australia. So, um, and that's that's a, a latest study by advisor ratings. And there's really an advice gap there for 5.4 million Australians Australians who really need professional advice, but they just can't get it, and it's because it's too expensive, or they just can't access an advisor.
1: But um, what, what has caused that decline? Yeah, well, there's
0: there's a few things. I mean, the biggest has really been the, the outcome of the Hayne Royal Commission and the introduction of the the FASIA board. So that Is was that a, that
1: um, banking royal commission? The banking and, royal commission. <laughs> the notorious <laughs> banking royal commission.
0: And they introduced this FASIA board. So that set minimum educational requirements for advisors. So every advisor providing personal advice had to pass this exam by the beginning of this year. And it's it's been something that's designed to raise the education, the ethics, yeah. the, the training standards uh, in the industry. But a lot of advisors have either failed twice or they've just chosen not to do it. Advisors also now need to have a, a qualified degree. So you've got a lot of older qualified advisors who never got a university degree. Degree, they're now being told they have to go get one, and it's just in the too high basket for yeah. them. Yeah. And you know, they may have a very unblemished record, but they can't go and um, still practice as an advisor. So there's there's the FAZIA, but then there's also the cost of providing advice and regulation. That's another big hurdle. You know, an advisor may spend twelve to thirty hours preparing a financial plan or a, you know a, a plan for a client. Um, so that's pushing the cost up. All of those regulatory requirements um, that. I mentioned earlier means that advisors have to spend more time so it's just not in there uh, they just can't afford to be providing advice to a lot of smaller clients so it means that they're falling off their book and they're really only servicing a smaller number of probably high net worth clients who can afford to pay for the advice. So you're sort of in this double bind, the advisors are shutting up shop or they're closing down. We've also then had the big exit out of the industry from from the banks who um, are no longer providing advice, which is probably a good thing. Mm. But, you know, that's also led to this sharp fall. Uh, in advisers, so I think there's a big review at the moment, the quality of advice review, that's trying to address this massive shortage, as well as the cost hurdles that, and and regulatory hurdles that the the industry is facing.
1: Because a lot of the problems with the banks were that they were recommending products. Well, they they were recommending their own products. And so there was a conflict of interest in there as well. That's
0: right. And that's what you call vertical integration. They're Mm -hmm. providing the advice. I mean, AMP was a classic example that I think we all know. You know, you have an AMP advisor. They're looking at their product list. They're all AMP products, high Mm -hmm. fee products, Mm -hmm. terrible performance. Oh, we're going to get onto fees. I'm looking forward (laughs) (laughs) to talking about fees. Recommending them to their clients so Mm. that they they get the, the bigger commission or, you know, the licensee ends up making more money, which is, yeah, really, really conflicted.
1: Yeah. Well, let's get to some jargon busting (laughs) (laughs) because that's a big part of it. So I wanted to start with the difference between the accumulation phase and pension phase of a person's investing life? Is yeah. That the
0: yeah. So accumulation, as, as it sort of sounds, it's when you're accumulating wealth so that you can lead the life that you want in, in retirement. You're putting as much as you can into super. You might even be investing outside of super. It's all of the strategies you're putting in place to, you know, once you hit 65 or whenever you want to start drawing down an income, you're trying to maximise that as much as possible.
1: And then the pension phase?
0: Pension phase, or otherwise known as retirement phase, is when you actually start start drawing down on your superannuation. So that's usually when you retire. So that could be 65 or a lot older these days and Aussies are working a lot or you meet some other kind of condition of release. So you draw down from your super, there's stipulated minimums that you have to draw down each year that are based on your age. But it could also mean that you're getting some pension from the government as well and you could also be living off some other savings so that's really that pension retirement phase and that should hopefully last you through to through your retirement (laughs) your retirement years um Mm -hmm. we all know we're living longer so it needs to last a a lot lot longer
1: hundreds of the new eighty. that's real that's right But that's where it gets confusing in terms of the pension phase, because that's where you really do need some sort of advice, because you might be getting money from investments or from annuities or from your super and possibly some from uh, Centrelink, depending on your means there's a lot of moving parts aren't there
0: there are and that's often when australians do need advice They're they're in that vulnerable stage where they're transitioning to their retirement and they want to make sure that they're getting the most effective outcomes so it can really help to get advice at that at that stage how much should you be taking down from your super you want to feel comfortable that you can cover your cost of living needs what are your your entitlements from a government pension you know you've got assets tests income tests you regulate have to report that information to Centrelink. So it can be helpful to have someone who can handhold and and guide you through that process and set you up with a plan and and manage that for you um, for as long as you need.
1: And transition to retirement, that's another phase, isn't it, really, in between, which has got its own special uh, rules.
0: It does indeed. Mm. So that can be quite complex. That's when you're not quite ready to retire, but you cut down your hours. You can then start accessing your superannuation and drawing a pension, but you're also using the income from your employment to complement that. But because you're still working, you can then still have an active superannuation account that's separate to your pension account and contribute back into that and it's known as a transition to retirement strategy but that's something you definitely need to get proper advice around to make sure that you're getting the right benefits and using it to its full benefit.
1: Okay, so what's a WRAP platform?
0: yeah i mean you could otherwise call it an investment platform so when i was a financial planner we actually um, used wraps and it's it's a really easy way for an advisor to set their clients up with a mix of different investments so it could be term deposits shares unlisted managed funds and they're all wrapped up together on this platform so it makes it very easy for you to select different products from different product providers and and then manage that for your client and you get the benefit of consolidated reporting, all of the tax summaries and the tax reporting is managed for you. But you, the client, actually pay for that convenience, not the advisor. Oh, we're, the like client. I said, we're going to be talking about
1: the fees of all you this. You pay
0: yeah. for that. So yeah. there's always going to be a wrap administration fee for the administration that goes on within that mm. platform. But you'll also then, if your advisor is ever buying and selling for you, there's also transaction costs that will be incurred as part of being on the wrap. So just consider it as a bucket. You're wrapping everything up together, but you get the benefit of that consolidation and that, and that reporting but yeah, as I said, you pay a price for that.
1: And what's an approved product list?
0: Good question. <laughs> so if we use a wrap as an example, you know, a wrap platform could have, let's say, 3,000 products available on it. Now, if I'm an advisor, my licensee is only going to allow me to recommend a certain subset of those that they've approved. And that's their approved product list. They're products that they've vetted, often through an investment committee, and they agree that are appropriate products for their client base. Now, this can also lead to conflicts as well, because Mm. what you'll often see is a lot of licensees will have their own products on their product list, or it could mean that it's outdated and, you know, your client isn't necessarily getting the best investments out there. There are a lot of ETFs out there now, but a lot of advisors continue to recommend, you know, actively managed funds, unlisted funds that are much more expensive and may not you know, achieve the best returns for their clients as well.
1: Okay, so then, well, let's talk about fees, (laughs) the exciting moment of fees (laughs) and how much this is going to cost you. And I just want to preface this by saying something that I have learned and why I devoured this statement of advice is that costs compound. In the statement of advice, there were three fees outlined. There was the advisor fee, the platform fee and the ICR. Run us through them, Sarah. So many layers of fees
0: (laughs) and this is where it can become quite not transparent. So Mm. um, the advisor fees we mentioned, that's the fee you will pay your advisor for the strategy. What are the recommendations? They'll charge you a fee for that. Um, And that might be a fee that you pay each year if you're having ongoing reviews. So you need to factor that cost in. It can be thousands, if not multiple thousands of dollars. You've then got the platform fees. Sorry, just
1: before we get onto the platform fee, the advisor fee. So some advisors will not only be getting the money that you're paying them, but they will be getting a certain income stream coming from some of the products that they provide as well?
0: That's that's correct, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so a lot of advisors will recommend certain products because they might get a a revenue stream coming from that. It's a very easy way for them to make money, and that's when it be- can become conflicted again mm. because the advisor can be recommending products that are going to benefit themselves rather than you the client and yeah those fees that you mentioned even if it's just a tiny bit coming out of your you know your returns each year at compounds like credit card debt and it can end up being thousands of dollars over the course of your your lifetime.
1: But they do have to disclose that to you do Absolutely
0: that should all and that's one thing to look out in the statement of, of advice any relationships, commissions, trailing commissions, revenue that they're getting from products or product providers must be disclosed in your SOA. So if you see that and you you don't feel that it's right, that's also a bit of a red flag.
1: So that's the advisor fee. Now what's the platform fee?
0: Exactly what we just talked about with the WRAP platform. So um, if you want to hold investments on a platform, they will often charge you an administration fee. Some platforms charge a flat fee. Others might charge you a a percentage based on the value of your assets held on that platform. Typically, the more you invest, it can be a a sliding scale model. But for example, it could be 0.5% of your total uh, account balance held on on the platform. So yeah, that's an important fee to add into that total fee calculation when you're you're chatting to your advisor.
1: And then what's the ICR? What is that fee?
0: Yeah, so that stands for an indirect cost ratio, or otherwise known as a management expense ratio.
1: Yeah, that's but, the other thing because you often hear MER as MR, well. MER, ICR,
0: yeah. So anytime you're investing in a product, the product issuer is going to charge you a fee. So for example, a managed fund, they might charge you a fee of 1.3% to invest into a an actively managed share managed fund, whereas a share ETF, for example, might charge you just 0.1% to invest into a share ETF. So those those MERS and ICRs are really important, um, and they can be quite um, quite different. And you know that's what we found looking at ETFs and why we recommend them to our clients because. Yeah. They are much, much lower fee products and those fees really accumulate over the period of your your investing um, and often managed funds can be 10 to to 15 times the cost of a a low cost ETF. So really important one to look out for as well.
1: This episode of Shares for Beginners is proudly brought to you by Stockspot. Now, I don't want to get into the specifics of my mother's situation, but you provided a complimentary appraisal of the investment part of her investment plan. And what became clear to me and my brother is that the ICR fees are high because of investments in managed funds, whereas ETF fees are much lower. Has the advice industry been slow in passing on the benefits of lower fees in ETFs to clients?
0: Yeah, I believe that they have. I mean, ETFs have been around for 20 years now. And as we mentioned earlier, you know, a lot of these advice providers have their approved product lists and continue to recommend actively managed funds to their clients, which have much higher fees. So as I mentioned earlier, the average actively managed share fund has a fee of around 1.32% per annum versus an equivalent share. ETF um, charging 0.1%. I mean, that's a 13, you know, the the managed fund is charging 13 times the cost. And clearly on an after fee perspective, most actively managed funds underperform a general index, fewer than 20% outperform over the long run. So it's astounding that these, you know, financial licensees aren't refreshing their product lists and, and adding ETFs as a really viable product for their clients but the main reason will be is those fees that they're getting out of those products often uh, with ETFs they wouldn't be getting any
1: ongoing fees from the product. So anecdotally Have you noticed a trend where the children of older parents are waking up to the fees that are being paid?
0: Absolutely. Really? Um, It wasn't
1: just because I would make a podcast and (laughs) suddenly I know know what I'm doing.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm on the advice team at Stockspot. We have thousands of clients. I chat to so many clients who are now really, really fee savvy um, and performance savvy, and they're coming to us because they want professional investment advice and they know that they can get it for a fraction of the cost. Um, We don't charge for a statement of advice, for example example, but they're still getting really good investment outcomes from, you know, having a simple ETF portfolio. So I'm speaking to more and more of our clients in their 30s, 40s or 50s. Who are looking at their parents who are advised and really questioning the value that those advisors are giving. Um, they're often in high fee products. We actually offer to do health checks where we'll yeah. actually, you know, look at the parents' portfolio and do an analysis around, you know, what are the fees they're paying, what's the performance, how well diversified are they, do they have defensive investments in there? All of those types of things, so that you know, our clients can either go back to their, their parents and, and have a conversation, but also you you know, feel confident that their parents are are getting value for money and 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 the right outcomes as well.
1: So yeah. How difficult is is it to have that conversation with your parents?
0: Do yeah. you ever hear any
1: stories about that?
0: I think um, I think older generations can be quite sensitive to and talking very about private. money. Yeah, very, they're very private. private aren't they? It's yeah. that era where money was you know it was taboo. You don't talk about it. But and also. If your parents are being advised, there can also be a trusted relationship there with an advisor. So I think you need to tread quite sensitively and and carefully Mm. in broaching the conversation. Because they they
1: invest so much into the the trust that they have for that person, don't they?
0: Well, that's right. And if they've been with that advisor for a while, then um, they they might have a relationship. So you don't want to go gung-ho and be accusatory. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I would start by, if you want to help your parents understand if they're being advised well, you know, what is their relationship like? How frequently do they meet with their advisor? What value are they getting? Is their advisor explaining things to them in an easy to understand way? It's not full of jargon. It's not massive reports where they can't articulate the advice all of those types of things just to get a sense of where your parents are at. You could also, if you're investing yourself and in using an alternative option, plan a seed, talk about the fees you're paying, what's changed in the industry, what options are out there, just so they have a point of comparison. But if you're really concerned, you could also offer to attend the next meeting with your parents just as a, as a sounding board so that you can both feel confident that they're being looked after in the right way and, and yeah, not being taken advantage of.
1: And what kind of questions should you ask at that meeting?
0: You should definitely ask about the fees. From
1: every <laughs> what are the single t- one of them. Total
0: fees. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that is number one and that's often where um, things are really opaque and not transparent. But also what is the asset allocation? How is the money invested? What strategies are in place if there are, you know, strategies around social security or whether it's investing? You know, you just want to get an understanding of what's what's in place there. I mean, they're they're the most important things. And then, of course, just the performance, you know, and, and I guess wanting to know that their capital will see them through to retirement. And I, I would stop there. You could then venture into estate planning eventually. But as the, as the initial sounding uh, questions, I would focus on fees, diversification and performance
1: but that that's very difficult because if you if you don't understand the mechanics of investment allocations and different sectors it can be very difficult to understand it and you really want the the advisor to articulate it in a way that makes it easy to understand even if you're a normal person without any financial experience
0: yeah without a doubt yeah mm. it's really really important and any advisor who can't articulate that to mm. clearly there's a there's a problem there and you should question that but most advisors should be very, very well experienced on asset allocation and knowing what's appropriate for the client. So, you know, that's the important of doing regular annual reviews. You know, your risk profile can change over time, particularly mm. as you move through different life stages. You you tend to become more conservative, looking after the money you've got becomes more and more important. So you wouldn't want to see someone in their 70s or 80s in a you know a high high growth portfolio where they're heavily exposed to Australian and international shares. They should be having far, far more defence in their portfolios. A lot of more stable things like bonds, fixed interest. Still with that little bit of allocation to growth assets that will still help their money to grow because that's important if you're drawing down on it. Um, So yeah.
1: Mm. So how much of a problem is elder abuse?
0: It's a good question. I Mm. did some research into this and of all the elder abuse out there, financial abuse is the most common. So recent statistics are that one in 10 elders experience some form of financial abuse. This could come from a family member. Mm. It could come from a, you know, a a relative, or it could come from a, a third party. It could be an advisor. It could be you know, like what used to happen. Thank God the anti-hawking provisions are now in place, financial service providers making unsolicited calls and selling products. And we know that elderly people are a lot more vulnerable and, you know, they fall prey to a lot of scams and they could end up handing over their, their life savings. Similarly, it could be... An advisor who may be a bit unethical and who may be recommending high fee products, or you know something that's going to eat into that person's capital much more than it mm. should be. But yeah, I was quite shocked to understand the number. And you know, with the aging population, over 65s growing and growing, it's only set to increase as well.
1: You now it's really sad when you see family members at odds with each other, especially about this, because some family members are quite cool about the inheritance and then other family members, that's all they can see.
0: Yeah, and mm. and this is a common form of financial abuse. It's this inheritance entitlement. Mm. Yeah, and it's shocking to think that that's what it gets to. And
1: it's so common. <laughs>
0: so common, mm. yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's where there can be a lot of family breakdowns and family feuds over that um, and can actually sort of break families apart.
1: Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, what is the stock spot solution to all that we've discussed?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so many things. There we are haven- so many
1: there are so many things. I guess there's several layers of this. The first one is if you haven't retired yet.
0: If you haven't retired yet, know that you can access advice Um, there are so many options out there like us you know we offer advice for such a low cost if you've got ten thousand dollars a hundred thousand dollars know that you can come and chat to a professional if you come to us you'll speak to myself or Hannah who's one of our advisors on the team we can do a portfolio health check for you we can have a conversation we're actually here to help you work out what you need with your investing journey we can give you general guidance on other aspects as well but just know that there are low-cost options. I mean, that's the great thing about the fintech industry. There's a lot of alternative options out there now compared to going to a traditional advisor where the fees can be a lot higher. So do your research, but but reach out and we can certainly help guide you.
1: Mm. And if um, someone's retired, really with StockSpot, they've got to be in an SMSF, is that the case?
0: Yeah, if it's within the super environment, absolutely. But if you're still investing outside of super, you, mm-hmm. you have the option to open up um, a trust account with us or an account in your individual name joint name so we have retirees doing both mm-hmm. uh, they may have their self-managed super fund but you can also continue investing outside of super um, trust accounts have become quite popular as well with the the, um, balance caps now um, within the super environment so we've definitely got clients doing both again you know if you're worried about your parents not getting good advice just be there for them inquire into it know that there are lower cost options available you know I'm helping you know clients at the moment transitioning off complex wrap platforms out of unlisted managed funds to come to a simple ETF portfolio it is possible and the fee savings are you know they could be thousands if not tens of thousands of dollars for your parents each year you know I'm also talking to clients who have their parents have just met a financial advisor but there's a few red flags there so they're coming for us coming to us as a sounding board so reach out there's people like us available to help and, and chat
1: through options for you. So if people want to find out more, how can they find out more about Stockspot? You can
0: find out more on stockspot.com.au. You know, we have so many channels you can connect with us. We're on live chat. You can book in a call. You can email us. You can call us directly. If you are interested in signing up, you'd hit get started on our website. You actually go through and we'll give you a personalized portfolio recommendation. Anyone tuning into the podcast, we've got a special promo code. You can put in the promo code FUTURE, F-U-T-U-R-E, and you will receive... of your portfolio managed for free for 12 months, which is a really great way to get started. It's super easy. But as I said, if you've got questions, pick up the phone and yeah, we're here to help.
1: I've got one more question. (laughs) (laughs) How much can you um, uh, save in fees?
0: Oh, a ton. Um, It depends. I mean, because
1: we've talked about the three levels of fees with a traditional financial Literally
0: thousands of dollars, depending on how much you have to invest. But if we look at, say, someone with $100,000 investing with us, that would cost you about $660 a year, all inclusive. If you were going to an advisor and then being set up on a WRAP platform, uh, you'd be paying an advice fee for a couple of grand I'd say or mm. thereabouts and then you're paying those rapid administration fees so that's going to cost you multiple thousand you know several thousand dollars so it's it's quite a saving we don't charge our clients for the statement of advice it's actually automated in our sign-up process which is quite amazing you still get that document with your personalized portfolio recommendation but our fees are focused on the money we're managing for you uh, there's no brokerage fees anytime we're buying or selling no platform fees no entry or exit fees just that all inclusive monthly fee. So, really worthwhile and definitely an option worth looking yeah, into. Yeah,
1: that, this is what's really um, been stark for me is the amount of fees that are charged. It's like I said previously in the interview, where you're talking about, okay, oh, it's 2% or it's 2.3% per annum. And you think, well, that doesn't sound like a lot. But then when you think about it, I think in your example, it's 0.6 of a percent it would come to?
0: Correct 0.66 um, for balances up to 200k mm-hmm. and that's exactly right percentage terms are quite hard for consumers to get their head around yeah you just don't understand it, particularly do you, really, when yeah. they're split out into yeah. a little percent here and a little percent there I mean even my mum you know she was in a, a terrible MLC superannuation product and I couldn't mm. believe her fee statement when I looked at it mm. and how complex it was and all of these fees that are in tiny, tiny fine print, but that the average person wouldn't even look at. But they were actually the bulk of her fees each year, like multiple like two to three thousand dollars coming out of her super account. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of work that needs to be done around fee transparency and making it more digestible for the consumer and anyone receiving advice.
1: Sarah King. Thank you very much for joining me today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
1: This episode of Shares for Beginners is proudly brought to you by Stockspot. If you found this podcast helpful, please tell a friend, especially if it's someone who needs to start thinking about investing for their future. You'll be helping them and helping me to keep this show on the road. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes
0: only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not shares for beginners. This podcast
1: doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. And thank you for listening to my podcast.